Ricky. Look, thanks, Ricky. Thanks, Adeline, for reading that. Uh, please keep that open. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word, which is not so far away that we have to go up into heaven to access it, but you have given it to us in a way that we can understand and respond to. And we thank you for the testimony of the book of Joshua. Um, help us to see how it points to Jesus and applies to our lives today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The 1996 film Train Spotting opens with its main character, a young Scottish man named Renton, Mark Renton, being chased through the streets by the police. And as this plays out, we hear his voiceover delivering a monologue. It's been known as the it's become known as the Choose Life speech. He says, "Choose life, choose a job, choose a career, choose a family, choose a big television." Choose washing machines, cars, and compact disc players. It was 1996. Renton, however, does not have any of these things. He has not chosen these things. Why? Because Renton leads a life gripped by substance abuse. And so his monologue continues. He says, choose your future. Choose life. But why would I want to do a thing like that? I chose not to choose life. I chose something else. For Renton, life is financial security, a family, home comfort, and not life is actually what he's experiencing, his addiction, and all that that brings with it. And when put like that, side by side, it seems like such an obvious choice, doesn't it? Who would choose, as Renton himself describes his life, misery and desperation and death over a nice, healthy life? Most people wouldn't. Most people don't, thankfully. It's not a choice at all, really. And Renton himself recognises this in the movie, in that opening speech, the ultimately destructive nature of his choice. And yet, choosing life over not life is far from easy for him. Even though he knows it's doing him harm, Renton is a slave to his addiction. It's his master. And so the rest of the film is his trying to throw off that master once and for all and choose the right master, choose life. In the final chapter of the book of Joshua, we see Joshua present Israel with a similarly stark choice. Life or not life. He says, whom will you serve? Choose whom you will serve. The true and living God, Yahweh, in whom alone is life, spiritual and otherwise. Or the, the mute false gods of the surrounding pagan world, in whom ultimately is, is not life, in whom is death, spiritual and otherwise. And as we've seen all throughout this series, though the expression of it might change, God's call to his people in the promised land remains God's call to his people today, remains his call to all people today, to you and me. As we close out the book of Joshua, we are left with the question, whom will you worship? How would you answer that question? How would you answer that question as a long-time member of Minchabri Anglican? How would you answer that question as a visitor here today? Can you answer that question? Do you know whom you serve? 
On the one hand, the choice seems as straightforward as Renton's choice in train spotting. God is God. With him means life, spiritually and otherwise. Without him means non-life, spiritually and otherwise. On the other hand, in the din of a surrounding culture that clamors for our affections and directs our attentions to everywhere but our Creator, we can find it very difficult to see the options with that sort of clarity, can't we? What the Bible tells us is not life looks an awful lot like life a lot of the time. So we need clarity, and that is what Joshua 24 provides us with. Clarity on this fundamental question, whom do you worship? The situation, by the time we get to chapter 24, is the end of the conquest. If you look back just to the beginning of chapter 23, the chapter before it, the very first verse tells us a long time after the Lord had given Israel rest from all the enemies around them. And so in chapter 23, we see Joshua summoning Israel's leaders and summing up where they are. They're in the promised land, secure. But he also summarizes why they're there, because of the power because of the faithfulness of God to his promises. And so Joshua's work is done. His work as a leader, he will go on to die eventually at the age of 110, as the end of chapter 24 tells us. So humanly speaking, Israel's future now lies in the hands of its elders and all those who who had experienced all the works that Yahweh had done for Israel. Joshua 23, he charges them, Joshua, with passing on the torch bearing witness to all that God has done to the next generation. And so Joshua 24, it records his final leadership act, a formal renewal of the covenant they have with God. And through Joshua, God calls on Israel to commit wholeheartedly to him as the one who alone has made them, who loves them and who has provided for them. It's an historic, sacred moment as much as any in the entire book of Joshua. And this, this historic, sacred moment, it involves two things, primarily. It involves a personal call, and it involves a potent choice. It involves a personal call. It all begins rather impersonally, doesn't it, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 24. The covenant renewal involves all the tribes of Israel. And as the discussion unfolds in the second half of the chapter... Verses 16 to 24, between Joshua and Israel, all of Israel's responses are given as a whole, as a, as a singular corporate entity. And we've seen this, how Israel is portrayed and how God deals with Israel as one throughout the book of Joshua. It all seems pretty impersonal, and yet there remains a deeply personal dimension to God's call. Firstly, even on the corporate level, as a nation, There's the very fact of God's particular and personal attention to them. God acts for them and for their benefit. He acts personally. Just think on that for a moment. He's God. The pre-existing being of all existence. And yet this limitless being chooses to limit himself to creating people in his image. And then to creating and calling a nation that he calls his own. And this is driven home in the review of Israel's history, isn't it, in verses 2 to 13. It's not just a roster of God's power and faithfulness, 
but how God has marshaled that power and directed that faithfulness towards Israel specifically. It's a reminder of all that Yahweh has done for them. A bit like an, like an entrepreneur, you know, a wealthy venture capitalist with limitless resources who discovers this struggling little company and then turns and directs all their resources, all their influence to that company, helping it to grow, to flourish. That's Israel's story. That is Israel's relationship with the God of the universe. It's deeply personal. But, but God's call to Israel is even more personal still. You see Joshua's language there in verse 15. Choose for yourselves. Yourselves suggests more than just, you know, corporate, state, religious adherence. More than just a national faithfulness to God. This is on the level of each family, of each individual. And Joshua's own declaration in verse 15 reminds us of that, doesn't that? What does he say? Famously, as for me and my family... We will worship Yahweh. Even if all the rest of Israel turns away, we will worship Yahweh. And this personal call of God to the Israelites, it's at once a challenge and an honor. It's a challenge because it's not enough for individuals just to leave the commitment to God to their elders, to the leaders of their nation. God's call is personal. Each Israelite is called to love the Lord their God with their own heart, with their own soul, with their own mind, with their own strength. There's a challenge in that. It's not enough just to be part of a faithful, worshipping community. But there's also an incredible honour. Think of how that esteems each Israelite. Each Israelite is called. God doesn't just summon a community. He calls individuals. The Israelites are more than just the sum of their collective numbers. They are, each one of them, lovingly and personally called to know and love and serve God. He has numbered the hairs on their heads. Just yesterday, or not yesterday, on Friday, Google turned 21. If you logged on to Google to search for anything, you may have seen this. Google is a massive company. 70 offices in 50 countries around the world, over 88,000 employees. Imagine if the current CEO of Google was the person who started Google. But now look at the size of the company. And yet imagine if that CEO had gone and established genuine personal relationships with every one of its 88,000 plus employees. They're not just a group of his employees. Every single one of them. That is the reality of God's call to the Israelites. doesn't matter how big their nation gets, his call is personal. So that's the first dimension of this covenant renewal, where they're at. It involves a personal call from God to Israel, the nation, and more than that, to each individual. How are you going to respond? Whom do you serve? And this personal call leads to a potent choice that Israel faced. They face a potent choice, wholehearted commitment to God, to Yahweh. Now, this isn't a new theme. This isn't a new theme. This has characterized Israel as a people. It's no surprise that we see it again here in verse 14. Therefore, fear the Lord and, what's the alternative? Get rid of the gods of your fathers. It's not both and. 
It's either or. It's exclusive. You're either with Yahweh or you're against Him because we all worship something and someone. And if you're not worshipping Yahweh, then you're worshipping someone else. And as we considered last week, of course, who else would be worthy of our worship and our adoration but the one true and living holy God? Once we step back from that, we realize it's, it's no choice at all. And this is highlighted by the lame alternative that Joshua gives Israel. I think Ricky got the tone just right in her reading of it. If you do choose not to serve the true and living God, you know what your choice is? Your choice is between the pagan gods that your forefathers left behind or the pagan gods of the defeated Canaanite nations. That's it. Now, it seems an absurd choice. It seems an absurd choice for Joshua to put to Israel. It almost seems as if he's encouraging them from worship of God by giving them these options. And yet the absurdity is precisely the point. Joshua is saying, in effect, if you reject Yahweh, the all-powerful, all-faithful God of existence who has done all of this for you, the only option left to you are so absurd that they make no sense at all. Joshua is not driving Israel from Yahweh's service. In fact, he goes on to lay his own cards on the table. As for me and my family, we will worship Yahweh. That is a model to the rest of Israel. No, Joshua is seeking to shock Israel into being Yahweh's servants forever. And so Israel faced a potent choice, one that will bind them to worship of the true and living and holy God forever but one that will also put them at odds with the surrounding pagan culture. A choice that will lead inevitably to friction and hostility. But Israel also worship a potent God. They face a potent choice, but they worship a potent God. It's striking to note the one-way activity in the review of Israel's history in verses 2 to 13. It's all God, isn't it? Just have a look there. I took your father Abraham, I led him, verse 2, I multiplied his descendants, I gave him Isaac. To Isaac, I gave Jacob, verse 4, verse 5, I plagued Egypt, I brought you out. And so it goes on, right up to the present day, verse 8, I brought you to the land of the Amorites, I handed them over to you, verse 13, I gave you a land. I did, I did, I did, God said. This is the power and faithfulness of God. This is the potency of the living God. And it makes all the difference to the potent choice that Israel have to make. It's the difference provided by an underwriter. Underwriting is the process through which an individual or an institution takes on financial risk. They put up the funds to provide the financial guarantee for a particular venture. And the more robust the funds, the more robust the underwriter, the more chance that they can guarantee the venture will go through. Yes, the Israelites are being asked to make a potent choice, one that will bind them forever to worship of the true and holy God, one that will put them at odds with their surrounding culture. But it is a choice underwritten by the sovereign, faithful work of God on their behalf. Little wonder that Joshua's call to Israel begins in verse 14. Therefore, therefore, 
in light of the unmatched power and faithfulness of your God, fear the Lord and worship Him in sincerity of truth. How could you not? If nothing else, it's a a logical commitment. The only reasonable response in light of the grace that has been displayed. And so Israel responds, yes, we will. And again, it's interesting to note that Joshua kind of throws water on that response a little bit, doesn't he? Again, I think Ricky picked up the tone really nicely there. They say in verse 16, we will certainly not abandon the Lord to worship other gods. And then Joshua responds in verse 19, you will not be able to worship Yahweh. Because he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not remove your transgressions and sins. If you abandon the Lord and worship foreign gods, he will turn against you, harm you, and completely destroy you after he has been good to you. Why does Joshua respond that way? Isn't that the response that he's after? Well, it's because the Israelites, they need to be realistic about their claims to future faithfulness. And they need to understand who God is in his fullness. Because God is all-powerful and perfectly faithful in blessing, he is also all-powerful and perfectly faithful in judgment, the other side of the covenant. In the same way that he brought Israel to be and brought them into the land, he will send them out of the land. He will break them up as a nation. And as the biblical testimony goes on, as history testifies, that is exactly what has happened to the nation of Israel. They could not commit to the call they made. Joshua was just trying to keep them realistic. But they have received a personal call. They face a potent choice. And as Joshua establishes for us how God chooses to work in the world, points us forward to where we stand now. We see that Jesus himself continues to offer a personal call. We too are then faced with a potent choice ourselves. Through Joshua, God calls on Israel to commit wholeheartedly to him as the one who alone has made them, who uniquely loves them and who has provided for them. And through the gospel, God calls on you and me to commit wholeheartedly to Jesus the one who alone has made us, who loves us like no other and who has uniquely provided for us. Jesus' personal call, a bit like to the Israelites, involves a challenge. It's not enough just to be part of a faithful worshipping community. That's not the limit of Jesus' call. I would describe Minchinbury Anglican Church as a faithful worshipping community. Maybe you've grown up here. It's not enough just to be a part of this community, just to be a part of a family who faithfully worships Jesus. Whom do you worship? Whom will you serve? There's a challenge there in the the deep personalness of Jesus' call. But there's also an incredible honour, isn't there? The fact that Jesus would call us personally. You are more than just a number. Think of Jesus' shepherding metaphors in the New Testament. Often when we think of sheep, 
We think of a faceless, nameless number of a flock, but that's not actually how Jesus uses sheep when he teaches in the New Testament. Think of the parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15. What happens there? 99 sheep the shepherd leaves to go after one sheep that's lost. More than just the number. And Jesus says that all heaven rejoices over the saving of each sinner, each person. And in John 10, Jesus' famous self-declaration, I am the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Jesus' call is personal. Take that seriously, but take that to heart. And so our our choice is potent too. Because the potency of God's call to worship Him and Him alone has not diminished with time. Unlike those of the ancient Near East, we're unlikely to have little stone and timber statues around our place that we might bow down to. But as we reflected on last week, all the things that take our attention and our affections away from the primacy of God are such gods. They are what we really love. They are what we truly worship. Even otherwise good things, the things that Renton in his train-spotting speech defines as life, work and leisure, nice possessions, loving relationships. How are we to understand these things and their place in our lives? Well, we can and we should be thankful for them, deeply thankful for them. We can embrace them, we can celebrate them, we can pursue them but we cannot allow them to take the number one spot in our hearts and minds. They cannot dominate and determine our attentions and our affections at the expense of all else, at the expense of Jesus. To hear that God expects that sort of exclusivity of us, of our hearts, well, the choice that we make in light of that is only ever going to be a potent one. There's going to be fallout maybe from that. Personal ambitious fallout. Fallout with relationships around us perhaps in our culture and society. And it's the potency of that choice that I believe remains the single largest obstacle either to acceptance of the gospel message in the first place or to wholehearted commitment to Jesus. In our contemporary Western secular age, what we seem to fear abandoning most of all is autonomy, choice, the capacity to have things entirely on our own terms, to opt in or to opt out if we feel like it, to mix and match, have a bit of both, a bit of everything, spiritually and otherwise. But Jesus' call doesn't leave us with that option, does it? The option of self-rule. Self-rule is what the Bible calls sin, and it only leads ultimately to eternal death. Our choice is to come under the better guidance, the better choosing of Jesus and his rule. Because what does Jesus say in John 14, 6? He says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And perhaps you hear that and that, that gets to you, it sticks in your craw. Maybe you're here as a visitor today and you hear that. You're a stranger to the faith and you think that's... That's the sort of singularity of commitment. That's the way to be right with God, the only way. 
or maybe you hear that even as a long-term churchgoer, as a member here. It's worth noting that in Joshua, this call is being made to those who already identify as God's people. Maybe it makes you indignant. I am not prepared to give myself wholly to you, to submit my whole life completely to you, God, and your ways. Maybe it makes you worried. I'm not sure what will happen if I give myself to you, if I submit my whole life completely to Jesus and his rule. Perhaps it's worth bearing in mind how Jesus has exercised his rule. The eternal son of God, humbling himself to become a human being, humbling himself to death for the entire human race. In the cross of Christ, we are reminded that the God who works so powerfully to bring Israel into existence, to bring them into the land, to keep them in the land, is the same God who works so powerfully at the cross to judge sin once and for all and to raise Jesus from the dead. It's the same God. So yes, we have a choice. It's a choice, though, that is underwritten by the sovereign work of God on our behalf. Jesus is the realisation of all the hopes of Joshua and the conquest. In Jesus we see the ultimate definitive defeat of sin and godlessness. In Jesus we see the perfect faithfulness to God that his people were never able to show. And in Jesus we see eternal rest for our weary souls being secured. So choose your future. Choose Jesus and you are choosing life now and forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your call to us, though potent, though it makes us have to decide to choose and follow you at the expense of ourselves, and the world around us, that it's personal and it's underwritten by who you are and what you've done in Jesus. Pray for each of us that we may be able to say, as for me, we will worship the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.